Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Okay, so should I read it first and then we could yeah, talk? Do you want so read it? Yeah, yeah, read it, read it, read it in peace. And you know what? While you read it, I'll read it. Dateline, yeah, Kiev, Wednesday, September 25th, just after 5 p.m., local time. I'm at the offices of the not-for-profit Anti-Corruption Action Center, ANTAC. I'm with Daria Kalanyuk, ANTAC's co-founder and executive director. Oh, that's craziness. The White House has just released a transcript, detailed notes of a call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Hi, Mr. Zelensky, give you a call, and I'm also going to have a turning jump call, and we'll get to the bottom of it. On that call, Trump asks Zelensky to, quote, do us a favor, investigate his political rival, Joe Biden. With a bright orange beanbag chair and a staff of mostly young people, Antac has the feel of a small startup. Everyone here, not just Daria, is furiously digesting the document. Mm-hmm. So is that is it okay for the president of the United States to have attorney general of the United States to call the president of Ukraine to discuss investigation, is that okay? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I believe, I believe you are a lawyer. <laughs> it is actually very astonishing to me to see that something like that is happening in the United States, from which we are trying to learn how to make democracy. So I'm embarrassed. Embarrassed for the United States, I think. Uh, yes, I'm embarrassed for the United States. I'm also embarrassed for for Ukraine. Well, President Zelensky, I understand that he was in very tough position. Uh, because it's like you're a little guy talking to a superpower, and your country depends on this superpower. And your soldiers, who are dying every day in war with Russia, can stop dying if there will be proper support from the United States. If you Google Daria Kalanyuk, one of the first images that comes up is a woman holding a bullhorn surrounded by police. Her t-shirt reads, fuck corruption. Today she's wearing business attire. It is strange because, you know, we could expect something like that happening in a very authoritarian country like Russia, but not from the country which is a role model for us. Throughout our hour-long conversation, Kalanyuk maintains a state of outraged disbelief. Did you ever think that Ukraine would be at the center of an impeachment proceeding against an American president? I would never imagine that. Hello and welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica that digs deep into the business of the Trump administration. I'm Andrea Bernstein in New York. Ilya Meretz is in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and you'll be hearing a lot more from him this episode. A little about how Ilya happened to be in Kiev right now. For over a year, the Trump Inc. crew has been talking about Ukraine, the role it plays for Trump and the people around him. He's taken money from Ukrainian oligarchs. His former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, worked there for a decade and went to prison because of his work there. Michael Cohen has ties to the country, and Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has been making appearances in Ukraine for over a decade. We kept asking ourselves, why? 
What is it about Ukraine? So Ilya planned a trip months ago. And as it turned out, he arrived right after we learned that Ukraine was the country in the mysterious whistleblower report. As the story was breaking wide open, Ilya landed in Kiev. So this is Sofiska Street. Somewhere here is Paul Manafort's office, number four. He went there to follow a trail of corruption that started with President Trump's campaign chief, Paul Manafort, and led to President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. What I don't see anywhere are newspapers. Nobody's reading them. Nobody's selling them. Before we begin, a note. Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Ukrainian politicians and prosecutors can hollow out the meaning of the words they use. Corruption, prosecutor, cover-up, facts. Politicians in Ukraine routinely use prosecutions not as fact-finding missions, but as bludgeons to destroy opponents. Opponents like Darya Kalinyuk's group, ANTAC. It's an anti-corruption group supported by the European Union. Rudy Giuliani mentioned ANTAC in an interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN in September that went viral. The only thing I asked about Joe Biden is to get to the bottom of how it was that Lutsenko, who was appointed, dismissed the case against ANTAC, not-for-profit called ANTAC. Well, whatever the hell it was, ANTAC. Kalenyuk told Ilya that her group is being attacked because it's fighting corruption. The reason for that is that We are actually exposing grand corruption schemes in Ukraine. Uh, We are exposing also Western enablers of Ukrainian kleptocrats. We are painting the ass for many powerful people here. Kalenyuk has a warning for us about the way her democracy works and the direction ours is heading in. Well, fingers crossed for American political system. I hope that it will not repeat mistakes of Ukraine. Tell me what those mistakes are. When president dictates prosecutor general whom to investigate, it is a big mistake. It shouldn't happen in real democracy. Today on Trump Inc., how power is brought to bear on investigations into corruption in Ukraine and the United States and how the tools we have to fight corruption are themselves being corrupted. In the summer of 2018, the Mueller investigation was bearing down. Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, began talking about putting out a, quote, counter-report. That never materialized. What did happen, we know from the whistleblower report, is that Rudy Giuliani began to reach out to current and former Ukrainian prosecutors in late 2018. Giuliani was developing a counter-narrative to Mueller, arguing it was Ukraine that interfered with the 2016 election on behalf of Hillary Clinton. While he was at it, Giuliani began encouraging Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden, and they seemed game. In the middle of this, Attorney General William Barr released his summary of the Mueller report, followed by the report itself. Days after that, a new Ukrainian president won the election in a landslide, Volodymyr Zelensky. 
A few months later, Trump short-circuited the normal process and personally ordered a hold on military aid to Ukraine. And then, one day after special counsel Robert Mueller testified before Congress, Trump got on the phone with President Zelensky. That's when he asked for that favor, looking into the Bidens. In September, we all learned of the whistleblower complaint. Then Nancy Pelosi announced an impeachment inquiry. Then we saw the documentation of that Trump-Zelensky phone call. And then we read the complaint. Then it's now. There's one more thing about Zelensky you should know. Before he became U.S. president, Donald Trump was famous from TV. Same deal with the new Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. He starred in a popular TV show about a history teacher whose anti-corruption rant goes viral and propels him to the presidency. It's called Servant of the People. I would never imagine if you would tell me a year ago that, you know, in a year, a comedian from Servant of the People will become the president of Ukraine. A TV show about a TV show. A, a, an average guy who accidentally becomes president. Yeah, so in this TV show, there was an accident history teacher who suddenly became the president of Ukraine. And then the actor in this show, actually, Zelensky, became the president of Ukraine with the same name and brand, Servant of the People. Zelensky's real-life political party is also called Servant of the People. Here's a clip from the show. It's the moment when Zelensky's character learns he's won. Vasily Petrovich Goloborodka? Доброе утро, господин президент. Good morning, Mr. President. We are going to be talking about our TV president and his TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. But for that story to make sense, we need to start a little earlier in the timeline. After communism collapsed and the Soviet Union, state-owned properties like pipelines and factories were put in private hands. Everyone was supposed to benefit. Instead, a small number of businessmen hoarded assets and became the oligarchs. Their fortunes depended and still depend on keeping control of Ukraine's natural resources and building monopolies and working the government. This is, how, how deep is this? 370 meters. It's incredible. One big prize for the oligarchs was the largest steel mill and iron mine in Ukraine, in a town called Kriviri. It's an overnight train ride from Kiev. One machine turns solid ore into glowing liquid metal at a temperature of 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Then it's lifted into a giant cauldron and poured into steel bars. This is, like, very frightening. This place is a good example of how privatization can go wrong. In 2004, the factory was awarded at auction, not to the highest bidder, a multinational company, but to two Ukrainian businessmen who put in a bid of just half as much money. One of them happened to be the son-in-law of the president. It's not like Ukrainians were okay with this. The sweetheart deal for this steel plant caused so much outrage it was later voided and reversed. In 2005, the mill was put up for auction again. This time, an international steel giant offered the most and won. The oligarchs were unhappy. They wanted control of the natural resources. And to get that, they had to control the government. And they found just the man to help them do it, a man with 
decades of experience supporting corrupt leaders across the globe. Paul Manafort. At the time, 2005, 87% of Ukrainians were against the oligarchs candidate, Viktor Yanukovych. Manafort turned that around. There's a term people here use for Manafort's profession, polytechnolog, political technologist. Manafort did polling. He tested messages. He got Yanukovych, who previously spoke coarsely and had assault and robbery convictions in his past, to wear a good suit, get a good haircut, and speak Ukrainian. Because he was from Eastern Ukraine, he spoke Russian. In 2010, the oligarch's man won the presidency. Paul Manafort went to work for the new leader. He secretly lobbied the U.S. government. Yanukovych locked up a political opponent. Then Manafort hired a law firm to write a bogus report justifying her prosecution. All the while, Yanukovych was stealing massive amounts of money from the Ukrainian people. There's a memo a Manafort associate wrote during this period. It said, The number of people who admit they are having difficulty feeding their family throughout Ukraine today is stunning. The people protested. In February 2014, Ukrainians overthrew Yanukovych. He fled by helicopter to Russia. That's when Ukrainians discovered Yanukovych's otherworldly palace, the house that corruption built. Now it's a museum. Um, I just want to note we have left the city of Kiev. And yes, that's the main road to Mezhihiria. The road from Kiev to Mezhihiria passes through a tangle of high-rise housing estates and shopping plazas. My guide is Anastasia Lazo, a tour guide based in Kiev. It was really pissing people off because they were getting late. And, uh, she learned English as a teenager in Alaska. Uh, that's the funny part. Everyone is laughing like, Alaska, really? It's not in the United States. But, well, it is. She also goes by Stacy. It's really complicated to pronounce for the foreigners, so they call me Stacy. Oh, you became Stacy in Alaska? Of course, of course. The grounds of the estate are vast. There's a nine-hole golf course, a huge garage for Yanukovych's vintage cars, and a laboratory where, Lazo says, the president's food was tested to make sure it wasn't poisoned. After Yanukovych fled Mezhihiria in 2014, protesters and journalists found a trove of his financial documents dumped in the water. They dried them off in the sauna. The centerpiece of this Versailles is Yanukovych's mansion. I ask Lazo if Paul Manafort has ever been here. She doesn't know and tells me I can ask the man who manages the house. But she says I should divide whatever he tells me in two. I really like that Ukrainian expression. You can divide that in two, is that what you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Divide in two, it means like some of it can be true, but some of it not. But which part is true or not, you never know. The interior walls here look like the inside of a log cabin. Almost everything else is pure opulence. There's the sports complex. There's the helipad. There's the big floating restaurant. It looks like a big boat. There's the zoo. This is all really crazy. There's a stuffed lion. Yeah. Oh, that is, if you care about cats, that is so depressing. Oh, it's like an oxygen chamber. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is some kind of water massage. So it's like so this table can cost from 50 to 100,000 euros. Salt usually grows in the natural conditions in the underground caves or somewhere. But Guy wanted a salt cave here in his house. Oh my God, look I, at this coat of armor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
That's the last room. That will be the door where we get out. You can see people get out like in silence. At the beginning, they like got excited, and then as a result, they're like, okay. People do look a little stunned as they emerge into the sunshine. By the summer of 2016, Manafort had a new gig. After Yanukovych, he went to work running Donald Trump's campaign. Here's an interview Manafort did in the summer of 2016 with CBS News. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. Manafort was the go-to for campaign interviews. Then, in August of 2016, a story broke in the New York Times. It said Manafort was paid $12.7 million in off-the-books payments from Yanukovych's political party. Accounts of these payments turned up in a so-called black ledger. We'll be right back. We're back. Three years after the Black Ledger was made public, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani are on a campaign to question its origins and thus vindicate their since-convicted colleague, Manafort, and to smear their opponents and undermine the U.S. special prosecutor, Robert Mueller. To do that, Giuliani spoke to three current and former Ukrainian prosecutors, Viktor Shokin, Yuri Lutsenko, and Nazar Kulodnitsky. So remember those names. Shokin, Lutsenko, Kolodnitsky. I mean, I, I listened to the so. Oh, cool. Yeah. In Good. Kiev, Ilya met with two journalists, Aubrey Belford and Tanya Kozareva. You know, I'm going to make myself a cup of tea. They've been reporting on who Giuliani has been working with in Ukraine and how he got connected with the current and former prosecutors and also what it means to be a prosecutor in Ukraine. How did you get started working together on this story? So the way this started is, you know, I've been based in Kiev for just over a year. I'm an investigative journalist. This is Aubrey Belford. And I read this story in The Hill by John Solomon, who's a former AP reporter. And it basically laid out this scandal where Joe Biden pressured Ukraine to fire its chief prosecutor because he was investigating a company where his son, Hunter, served on the board. And I thought, wow, this looks like a real scandal. I'm going to investigate it. And my investigation lasted for about 30 minutes because the story just fell apart. It soon became pretty apparent that the guy that got fired, Viktor Shokin, basically everyone wanted him fired. The State Department wanted him fired. European countries wanted him fired. The IMF wanted him fired. Ukrainian anti-corruption activists wanted him fired. People protesting on the streets wanted him fired. And, you know, Joe Biden did put pressure on to get him fired. But to say that he was an anti-corruption fighter is kind of like saying that uh, Danny DeVito won, you know, silver medal for rhythmic gymnastics. It's absurd on its face. Uh, this guy was fired for being massively corrupt and for protecting corrupt people. Uh, but when I read it, you know, two things popped into my mind, which was, firstly, this story doesn't check out. And secondly, that this story seems ideally calibrated for U.S. politics, down to a T. And then Giuliani goes on cable news and he says it. 
He says, I'm working on this. Yeah, I'm, uh, uh, and I feel sorry about his involvement in the Ukraine thing. Let me tell you my interest in that. I got information about three or four months ago that a lot of the... Giuliani was working with Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, two men who emigrated from the Soviet Union. Now they live in Florida. Parnas has worked in real estate stocks, consumer electronics, with a history of business disputes. In 2017, he was ordered by a federal judge to pay half a million dollars to investors in a movie called Anatomy of an Assassin. To date, he hasn't paid it. He has said he's done nothing wrong in business or politics. Fruman, the other businessman, has an export operation, owns hotels and nightclubs. He has a beach club in Odessa on the Black Sea called Mafia Rave. Recently, Parnas and Fruman started giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republican causes. Their donations to a Republican super PAC in 2018 are the subject of a complaint before the Federal Election Commission. It was Parnas and Fruman who connected Giuliani with his sources in Ukraine, those prosecutors we mentioned. We don't know where the initiative came from. What we do know is that in fall of last year, Parnas and Fruman put Giuliani in touch with the ex-general prosecutor, Shokin, and after that, put Giuliani in touch and to meet with Shokin's successor, uh, Yuri Lutsenko. Can you talk about like what the general prosecutor is and does in Ukraine? Is it like a rough equivalent of our attorney general in the United States? Tanya Kozareva. It is a rough equivalent with the uh, with yeah William Barr position uh, with the attorney general position in U.S. But I think the, the, I mean the thing with the prosecutors in in Ukraine. Prosecutors in Ukraine often act like a protection racket. Prosecutors routinely will bring falsified or uh, drummed up cases against people and then drop them for money. Prosecutors will also be used by people with political interests, be they politicians or oligarchs, in order to smear people. And we learn as journalists pretty early on to know which prosecutors you can trust and which ones are, frankly, serial liars. And the guys that Giuliani is relying on have very bad reputations. Can you give me any examples? <laughs> well, I mean, Shokin was dismissed by Parliament after a massive public outcry because he was basically strangling off anti-corruption efforts here. Lutsenko is similarly uh, reviled by the public. His successor? Uh-huh. I mean, he's now an ex-prosecutor as well, but... Also, he never... Uh, Lutsenko is the general prosecutor which never had any proper education, you know. He he's had, not a lawyer. He's not a lawyer. He's not a lawyer? He's a no, he's a politician who just got into the office. Lutsenko has been widely accused of slow-walking corruption cases and of cooking up cases against innocent parties who are out of favor with Ukraine's moneyed class. He denies this. Giuliani's third prosecutor source is the uh, special anti-corruption prosecutor, Nazar Holodnitsky, who has himself been investigated for basically... Uh, collaborating. Yeah, collaborating with people under investigation for corruption, telling them what the investigation has and what to anticipate. Kolodnitsky was recorded tipping off suspects ahead of searches. All told, Giuliani spoke with these current and former prosecutors, Lutsenko, Kolodnitsky, and Shokin, about a dozen times. 
Giuliani collected the information they gave him about Trump's political opponents and passed it along, widely discredited though it was, to the American president. During one of Giuliani's meetings, the New York Times reports, Giuliani actually got Trump on the phone. We reached out to the White House, Giuliani, the three Ukrainian prosecutors, Parnas and Fruman. The only one who commented was Lutsenko, who said, without elaboration, that the whistleblower's allegations about him are false. Giuliani has been subpoenaed by the House Oversight Committee. Among the associations they're examining, Parnas, Fruman, the three prosecutors, and Giuliani's business partners in Ukraine. There was someone trying to focus attention on the corruption of Ukrainian prosecutors, the American ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. She called for Kolodnitsky to be fired. She said, nobody who has been recorded coaching suspects on how to avoid corruption charges can be trusted to prosecute those very same cases. He said the recordings were out of context. In May, Trump abruptly recalled Yovanovitch. There is now no U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. This brings us to the central subject of Giuliani's campaign. It's the idea that the Democrats and some Ukrainians interfered in the 2016 election in Hillary Clinton's favor. They did this, in Giuliani's version of events, by forging a document, the so-called Black Ledger, that showed secret payments from Yanukovych's party to Paul Manafort. Remember, Manafort is serving prison time because of the trail of corruption Robert Mueller uncovered, beginning with those payments he took from Yanukovych, bank fraud, tax fraud, money laundering, conspiracy against the United States. But Giuliani says the Black Ledger is a fake. Here's Giuliani in a May 2019 interview on Fox News, pointing a finger at a man named Sergei Leschenko. He's not the prosecutor Lutsenko. Their names are similar. He's been found to be involved in assisting uh, the Democrats with the 2016 election. Okay, so a let gentleman, me ask I'll give you, you his name. Your decision not by to the go. Name of, your decision uh, not to let, go. Let, let me, let, let me okay. finish. A, a gentleman by the name of Leschenko. Yes. Who supplied a black book that was found to be fraudulent. Okay. And never used because it was a fraudulent, mm-hmm. uh, incriminating statement that was totally untrue. Of course, it's not fraud. It's a real document, and of course, I'm not an enemy of American government, and I never intervened, interfered in American elections. In Kiev, I spoke to the man who helped to bring the Black Ledger to light, Sergei Leschenko. He's an investigative journalist and former member of parliament. I met him in a cafe in a hip part of the city. It is part of conspiracy created by Giuliani, conspiracy theory which is not based on relevant and real information because Black Ledger went through expertises in Ukraine and expertise proved that it's real document and signatures of people signed this book, real one. But to construct the conspiracy theory, Giuliani was looking for some information which can make this conspiracy possible. And he decided to spin this. It's fake and fake black ledger and so on. Leschenko is extremely tall with thick framed glasses. He turns 40 next year. Leschenko says to promote his theory, Rudy Giuliani seized on the fact that an administrative court found Leschenko acted illegally in publicizing the black ledger. 
Giuliani ignored the fact that the ruling was overturned on appeal. The appeal court stopped this decision in July this year, but it did not stop Giuliani and he continues saying this fraud. By casting doubt on the Black Ledger, Rudy Giuliani is trying to rewrite history. Paul Manafort, in Rudy's telling, is transformed from a political technologist who profited from a corrupt system and cheated on his taxes into the victim of a sinister anti-Trump plot, a plot that eventually led to Robert Mueller's investigation. But for Ukrainians, Manafort's role, even in the shadows, can't be erased. Leschenko recalls something that happened a dozen years ago. He was on assignment as a reporter in Switzerland to cover the corrupt politician Viktor Yanukovych. Paul Manafort was there. Leschenko made eye contact. At that time, Prime Minister Yanukovych traveled to Davos in Switzerland, attending World Economic Forum, and Manafort came to listen personally. And he appeared there together with Ukrainian tycoon Renat Akhmetov, who hired Manafort. Akhmetov is the patron who first engaged Paul Manafort's services all those years ago, after he lost control of the steel plant. And uh, I came to Manafort with the question, may you record interview with me? He said, no interview at all. And Akhmetov said, it's my friend. What did you know about Paul Manafort at the time? It was not a secret that he works for Yanukovych. He was a mysterious person. During, during 10 years, he made no interview at all, zero. But everybody was aware he works for Yanukovych. If Paul Manafort's actions are obscured in America, if he's seen as a victim, Leschenko says that will have a chilling effect on the people who are pushing to make Ukraine more democratic, open, and fair. Whistleblowers or anti-corruption activists who are ready to fight against the system, to provide this information, now will remember what happened with people like me or like ANTAC leaders who were under pressure for the last four years. And they will decide twice or triple, triple. Should they start this anti-corruption activity or it's better to keep silence, to keep eyes blind, not to make this noise about corruption and just not have, have no problem. When we started our interview, Leschenko was rubbing his eyes and glancing at his phone. He's been doing back-to-back news interviews for days. Suddenly, it seems, the world is interested in what he has to say about graft and disinformation. For me, it's another evidence that corruption is not just a Ukrainian problem, but it's a global problem. It happened everywhere in the world. And sometimes corruption, it's like a butterfly effect. Something happened in Ukraine, and tsunami happened in U.S. Leschenko has offered to testify before Congress about his experience with the Black Ledger and the disinformation campaign. We live in a time of abundant information. Aubrey Belford, the reporter we spoke with earlier, says Giuliani's Ukrainian partners have been adept at mixing truth with falsehood. The result is facts that are not really factual. We can say that these claims that have been pushed by Ukrainian prosecutors with Americans are incorrect. They mix truth and falsehood. They are disinformation. And Americans 
have picked it up and run with them. Whether this is a disinformation campaign that was all designed to turn out exactly as it has, I think is a little bit far-fetched. But what it does show is that this kind of stuff is currency. It's very potent currency. And, you know, I mean, it worked. They wanted to create a splash with this, and they have. What's it like living in a place where, like, nobody knows what's true? Well, I mean, it's like living in the United States. You know, this is a part of the world where disinformation is really, like, part of life. And, you know, it's being exported to the United States. And, you know, I mean, you guys are going to know what it's like soon enough. This episode was produced by Catherine Sullivan and Alice Wilder. Meg Kramer is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. The editors are Eric Umansky, Nick Varshever, and Robin Fields. The engineer is Jared Paul. Special thanks this episode to Dora Homiak and the Homiak family, Olga Golovina, Troy Etulane, Lydia Tomkew, the staff at ArcelorMittal, Krivi Reich, Anastasia Stacy Lazo. Thanks also to John Keith, Emily Mann, Irva Gunja, and Emily Botin. And thank you to ProPublica's Katie Zavadsky. Stephen Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. The original music is by Hannes Brown. <laughs>